Hey, Nate. Hey, Tom. There once was a fellow quite brisk whose AI policy plan was a risk. <laughs> he said with a grin, quote, <laughs> it's all plug and chagrin. Let's hope the robots won't whisk. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a limerick by ChatGBT. Doug, you got to upgrade to GPT-4. That was not very good. <laughs> um, welcome to the retort. Today, we're um, in the spooky spirit of discussing the executive order and probably cover some of the UK games related as well. And there's another open letter. There's one of those probably every week on this stuff. So we'll talk about that. I'm in Seattle, which is a little bit of a different place for my new job. I do the same things now, but now I'm paid for them again, after being not paid for them again, which is always good to get that support. And honestly, like, we could dive right into it. Tom read the executive order in more detail than I did. I skipped it and read a lot of takes about it. For some reason, people think it's actually going to matter. I think that... It's not. I think the intention matters than what they actually say. I think the intention to regulate AI this early in the cycle is probably more likely to be regretted than anything else. Like, it's just so early in what AI is. Like, all this stuff is just like, okay, really? And that's probably the takeaway they've heard elsewhere, but the details of it are still instructive about what people are thinking about. Cross AI. So, Tom, do you want to give us all of the details? There's preferably a lot. Not, <laughs> preferably there's... not a summary from ChatGPT. I'm having flashbacks to, I think it was summer, fall 2009, when Fox News hired a speed reader to like live on air speed read the entire healthcare bill or whatever the draft of the healthcare bill was, which was like a thousand pages. <laughs> And he just sort of goes through it, and then he gives, like, hot takes about it. So I'm not going to give a complete rundown of the entire executive order. I did read it. It, I've seen, you know, various hot takes on the Twitter space, as I'm sure, Nate, you have, and other people, our listeners, have as well. I read multiple blog posts about it, actually. It was, like, paragraph takes. I'm old-fashioned enough that I think the document's of this portent are, are worth reading yourself uh, in, in their entirety, even if- I, I even, would if I hadn't started a job. Yeah. <laughs> Clared, transparency. There's no shame, it's okay. But I, I do think, yeah, it's it's it gives me a certain, like, I think confidence behind what I'm gonna say about it because I, I have gone through it in, in detail, I guess. Um, I thought it was pretty good and the reason I thought it was pretty good is I didn't really take serious issue or see any red flags or ex like you know run into any mines in the way that I was afraid to. I was prepared for there being you know documents like this always start with a lot of definitions up front, and this one does. I didn't think the definitions were disastrous. You know it defines terms like AI. It defines terms like uh, you know, test bed, all these somewhat pseudo-technical things that the rest of the document needs to support it. And they're pretty coherent. They could have been defined differently, but at least in no way I saw were the terms doing damage. This is something that we can also talk about maybe now or in subsequent weeks because, you know, I'm only one person. <laughs> but as far as I could tell, they seemed like a platform on which any number of things could get built going forward. The actual substance of the order, uh, I agree with what many others have pointed out, which is that it is kind of all over the map. It's kind of doing everything at once. There is stuff there about the need to try and uh, make the biggest models report certain things uh, about their about their substance, or at least in terms of like their red teaming criteria. Um, there are certain thresholds for computation, uh, that are in there, which are interesting. 
Uh, so there's some kind of red meat. If it's fair to call it red meat, that's a funny term to use about AI safety people. But I think there is some <laughs> AI safety red meat here. Um, it's not raw, though, in my opinion. So Do you agree that some parts sound like they're written by different people? Like there are parts that are written by a safety person and then it goes back to normal? I mean, I think it's safe to say that documents like this are always Frankenstein monster yeah. type things, right? I don't think Biden himself wrote you know, anything in this. That, oh, yeah. that Did you see Biden go off script in his announcement? I didn't see was, that. What did he, he was talking about like deep fakes and he was like, other people are going to be fake. It was talking about how like, other people will be faked by deep fakes. And then he was started going out to his own tangent of like, people are going to be faked of the deep fakes of themselves. Biden, Biden was like, some staffers were showing me a video and he was like, why did I say that? <laughs> and, then, and then he thought it was really funny in like the awkward Biden way. And I was like, okay, okay, Biden. <laughs> okay. That's also it's not a bad point that like they're going to be good enough that they kind of make you question your own reality. But that's a different, I just like Biden's hilariousness and accept it as it comes. He's funny and he also has a, a very old reputation for like having gaffes and it, so it's also just weird that he's saying things about deep fakes because he, he's already kind of has a reputation for saying things that are hard to believe even if you're one of his, his staffers uh which is fine um yeah we also had a pro pros of that we had kamala harris give a speech uh i'm not sure if it was earlier today or yesterday with the time difference where she said basically you know, if you're a if you're a woman in a relationship with a man and he's showing you deep fake porn of yourself, how is that not an existential risk to you? Uh, she gave a few other examples. Wait, she said that. She said, yeah, it's a speech. <laughs> well, wow, it's so real. <laughs> she gave a speech. Yeah, it's almost. I I toyed with the idea of making a deep fake. Of... I was I was gonna say make up <laughs> make up a drinking game for like when whether it's a president or a vice president or a head of state referencing things that we've just been talking about for years internally as like and just the semantic kind of where the boundaries get drawn or redrawn around these things it's truly a surreal moment to have all of this kind of out in the open now um but yeah to return to what i was saying about the executive order yeah there's red meat for the safety people you know there's red meat in here for pretty much everybody i mean there's a lot of stuff in here about the need to form more coherent and consistent policies around discrimination in high-risk settings related to housing, related to, uh, you know, police policies, related to, you know, the kind of high-stakes, high consequential classification scenarios that have been the bread and butter of the AI ethics bias discourse for, I mean, seven, eight years, nine years now, almost a decade there's a lot in here and and it's all in the spirit even the red meat for the safety people it's really just like yeah biochemical risks can we do a two minute aside on bioweapons language models because i still don't think that there's any proof that that is actually the, the thing like i think the enabler of that is genome construction devices and i don't think the language model is going to change much yeah i don't think that's a hot take I mean, I mean I it's just always said, and I regretfully bought the like the inflection co-founder book, and then I learned it's literally just like a big bio disaster AI co cover book when there's no evidence showing like all of these things. I'm very ready to adjust my stances on openness once they show some actual risks. It's just so annoying to talk about fake risks, and the bio is the biggest one in my mind. Like, what are we talking about? Is <laughs> My sense for several years now is that the safety community often ends up kind of being its own worst enemy when they try and make concrete what existential risks look like. I don't think we've discussed yet on the pod um, this video, Slaughterbots. We haven't yeah. discussed it a lot ourselves. I yeah. almost said yes because we've discussed it so much. I don't think we've yet officially discussed it. We have, here. We have not. We definitely it have is not. relevant here. So basically this is a, I think it's still on YouTube. You can still watch it. It's a 
sort of Black Mirror-ish type trailer, I guess, for a, and to be clear, this is not real, a hypothetical deployment of drones, drone swarms, I believe, to be precise, that have facial recognition capabilities so they can recognize particular people when they're flying around. And it's deployed, I believe, by some kind of tech company. It starts with some kind of like pseudo TED talk given by the CEO. And it transitions to what's suggested to be some kind of terrorist cell that buys a fleet of these things. And they, I remember distinctly for some reason in my head, there's a shot of them opening up the back of a van and there's like (laughs) scores of these things coming out the back of it. And the drones sort of fly kamikaze style into a college campus. And there's a a classroom where they're apparently targeting students. I'm not sure if it's clear if it's particular students or just the fact that they are students. And the way that I remember it is them breaking into it on like a tech presentation, (laughs) like a tech keynote where they're like announcing products. I, I don't I don't remember. I honestly think that this is actually totally buildable technology and probably more of a real risk than length models. Well, pretty much a, a DJI drone with a hand grenade is a missile that you can pretty much buy. So the video ends with there's a kind of a cut to black, and then suddenly Stuart Russell appears. And you know, if you know Stuart at all, it's it's just very surreal. He's just it's a very the whole video is extremely disturbing and emotional and meant to be scary and then suddenly you have this very traditional academic in in an ivory tower sense sort of looking straight into the camera being like this is possible this is something that we're gonna have to form coherent policy around in order to ensure these kinds of things never happen and it's just very jarring with respect to like everything that preceded that little that little talking head clip of stewart And the video is just interesting. It's an interesting document just for that reason. But it's also interesting because, from my understanding, there was a confusion after this video was released. So this video, I believe, was produced by a group called, uh, calling itself the Band to Stop Killer Robots, which was a group that, you know, was interested in, well, the name kind of explains itself, basically. Um, That was what they cared about. And... There was a confusion where the video's uh, dissemination made many international people, I believe specifically in uh, the Middle East, possibly Turkey, although I could be wrong about that, believed it was real. So believed it was either a documentary or was describing a company or portraying a company that actually was building this stuff and that there were in fact terrorist cells or something that either could do this or were doing this or something to that effect. And so the video did not have the effect that its creators intended uh, because I'm not sure if a lot of thought was put into the way in which the story they wanted to tell would be understood or interpreted or what meaning would be drawn from it in the real world. And I'm sorry to say... I think that something similar is already happening and likely to continue to happen or even worsen in the context of the AI safety summit that's right now, I guess, probably wrapping up or there might be one more day, I guess, in the UK. It's like, are we saying that like biohazard stuff is like the same, a similar kind of story? Yeah, basically. Yes. I think that whenever we try and Whenever people who work on AI safety try and make concrete what would an existential risk look like, they tend, I think because many people in the field, they're computer scientists and they're not institutional scientists or social scientists or, um, you know, many of them don't, how can I say this, are not familiar with the history and rules of international relations or law. They tend to gravitate to these scenarios that are extremely concrete, but also kind of contrived. And, and this is one where I, I imagine the, 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 the scenario, the fantasy is something like 
you ask a language model how to synthesize some kind of uh, incredibly destructive biological agent or pathogen or disease, and you basically get, you know, engineered pandemics happening as often as anybody with an open source model could care to create them is sort of my broad sense of the fantasy there. And there is language in the executive order that specifically calls out biothreats and the need for biosecurity standards with respect to language models. On my read, it was not specifically anti-open source. It didn't do open source any favors. It definitely felt like it was trying to thread the line of not pick a side. <laughs> that was my read. Yeah. Which is fine. Do you think this like surprising? Like early, this early in the technology cycle, it probably should just be like innovation is good. We're monitoring the risks. So being equal is is telling in some ways. Like it's unusual that it's so concerned about risks when technology is so nascent. This it's seems to of, me. I mean, you've written about this on your blog as well. Um, is that these companies? There are particular companies that are. They have very, very strong incentive, and now I think they're taking actions that would corroborate a strategy around building moats around their own models and around their own pipelines with which they're creating future models. And I admit, it is hard for me to read certain parts of the executive order and hear certain kinds of arguments in this direction that they just seem very facile. They just seem like, well, in principle a bad actor could misuse a model and do something really dangerous. It's like, well, yeah, honestly, like that's true of pretty much any technology. Right. Yeah. It's like, they did talk about how language models are just going to make all the existing problems on the internet worse, which I still think is like, it's not an existential risk, but it's the big problem that language models pose. They're just making the internet data easier to access and more specific and the interfaces more powerful in ways that humans are sucked into. Oh, that's still a huge risk. Like, it's just like we need to understand it. <laughs> and open source presumably will help us get there. And I think I'm certainly sympathetic to that idea. And Nate, I have to imagine <laughs> that you are as well. You can speak for yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, there was this. I think it's this is a, as good a time as any to mention that there was a, I believe it came out today, a, a joint statement. It's called the Joint Statement on AI Safety and Openness, put out by Mozilla, that um, I signed. I'll go ahead and you know say that. I also signed. Yeah. So After much reluctance because I hate open letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't organized my thoughts on open letters per se, but I did sign this one because I felt that it makes what I would describe as a very pragmatic case for the fact that. If we're serious about safety, if we're serious about trying to make AI systems that are demonstrably, verifiably good, why would you not support open access in in so many more ways than are currently possible? I think that the case for that is borderline obvious, and it's kind of a shame that certain people or certain companies are in a position to postulate what are really kind of pretty harebrained, weird, quote-unquote existential risk scenarios in order to shift the Overton window around, well, maybe there's a reason why we need to create some gatekeeping or some moating or some particular standards for certain thresholds of what these models may or may not be able to do when it's really obvious that just feeds into a certain kind of business model and business narrative I mean, if I'm not wrong, Anthropic, since it has been founded, has been saying that they're going to come up with a set of evaluations for frontier model capabilities that when the models are learning these abilities, that they posit new risks. And that's kind of been the thing that I've been like, yeah, let's wait until they see they come up with these things that will enable certain behaviors. And once we have those evaluation techniques, I can kind of be more calibrated on safety, blah, blah, blah. And like those evaluations never have materialized. And it's like, and that's like, these are smart people trying to come up with real things that language models could cause large scale or existential risks and have capabilities that would lead to them. And they haven't shown anything. So it's like, 
Okay, <laughs> waiting. <laughs> I mean, I also recall. I don't know if this is still their policy, but I remember back when OpenAI was founded, there was language right on their website saying that our commitment to friendly AGI is so strong that if we have indication that another company is closer than we are to getting there, we'll just stop what we're doing and just join them or otherwise just, you know. Haven't heard a lot about that these days. No, but I remember, I mean, it stood out to it was, me. It was very prominent. Right. And it was billed right as such. And again, companies can like say whatever they want, but saying something is not the same thing as committing to doing something in, in a substantive way. And I'm sorry to say that the truth about governance is that unless you're required to do certain things, it's very difficult to take the commitment seriously because we live in a world, and it's not nefarious. It's just we live in a world where everyone's getting pulled in a hundred directions at once. So you're very unlikely to do something unless it's immediately relevant to your own self-interest or you have to do it. Like in what other circumstance is a multi-billion dollar company going to do anything in a concerted, organized fashion? They're not. Right. <laughs> So the idea that suddenly they're just going to like hoist themselves on the the kind of petard of history <laughs> and and just and just stop what they're doing for the sake of this abstraction doesn't make any sense even if you believe in the abstraction even if you believe that AGI is right around the corner or that you can somehow foresee its emergence on like a 6 month time horizon or something like that it just doesn't make any sense yeah, can we can we also get on the record before too far into this that the executive order only applies to federal agencies with other intentions, but anything that they put in an executive order only applies to how federal agencies will act. Uh, that's what that's yeah. what it means. <laughs> that's what it means. It's it is important. I mean, again, it's an executive order, so by definition, it only applies to agencies that are under the executive branch. So it's not a law, it's not passing any kind of regulation that wasn't already implicitly within the orbit of these agencies. The right way to read a document like this, I think, is that it is clarifying how the congressionally mandated discretion of these agencies uh, in fact applies to AI. Right. So there are laws already on the books about what is the FTC, what is NIST, what is the EPA, what are all these things? Okay, maybe when they were founded, maybe subsequently, it doesn't matter. The point is all this order does is interpret and, and more stringently apply and clarify what those mandates mean or amount to in the context of, I mean, generative AI, kind of more specifically, although this covers more than generative AI. There's a lot of AI stuff in here. So... I can get a what higher are the level. Things, yeah. What are the things where they're saying we're going to revisit it in 90 days or whatever means? Or 180 days? Like there's... Yeah, there's some, interesting <laughs> there's some interesting dates in here. There's it's some like interesting... in the context of the fact that it's only for executive branch things. Like the revisiting thing is pretty funny. <laughs> it might just be government stuff. Like so government this goes stuff. back. Here's what I like about this, though, is that the entire executive order is written in this voice of experimentation there's this kind of overriding what i what i at least was sensitive to when i was reading it was this sense of humility about the proceeding like honestly no one really knows where this is going nobody really knows quite what it precisely means to oversee what these capabilities are because the capabilities aren't even done emerging yet we don't even have a strong or robust scientific understanding of that or mechanistic understanding so barring that, we're kind of going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at what these different agencies should be keeping an eye on. And every once in a while, we should just do it again. <laughs> we should just periodically update this, which honestly is very much, I'm very sympathetic to that because it's very commensurate with the way I think AI regulation and standard setting and, and documentation should proceed, which is that it should be regularly updated and it should cross-reference the different types of feedback 
that are either explicit or implicit in a given specification. And that's just yeah. what that's just what this document does basically at the executive level is my read of it. What do you think of the critique that AI regulation should be grounded in an application domain and then like all the flop requirements and stuff are missing it? I think that's I guess I can say what I think just to keep going is I think that that's a critique that should be applied to AI regulation, but this isn't actually regulation. So it's actually not a kind of non sequitur. If, if, I, if I could try to use non sequitur in an actual way, I hope it was right. <laughs> um, I'm not the referee on, yeah, that's not what this is about. No, I think um, I agree with that. Yeah. If this was a law, if this was a GDPR or, you know, DMA style EU this is how we're going to regulate AI, then that would give me pause. That would concern me. But that's not what this is. As I've already said, I think philosophically the right way to understand this document is it is sharpening the lens on what is already implicitly in the mandate of specific federal agencies to be doing, and it's sharpening it with respect to AI. And I think that's inherently useful and it doesn't sharpen it so much that it's um, miscalibrated. Like even the stuff about biochemical weapons, it's really just like after a certain amount of time, we need an evaluation of whether or not that even is a thing, <laughs> whether or not that even is a risk. We need to keep an eye on it. It's not saying clearly this is a risk and clearly we need standards for it and we're going to defer to OpenAI and Anthropic on how those standards should be set. It does not say that. It's like, it's kind of... I don't know if ambivalence is the right word, but it's very much like this is a hypothesis. We're going to take the hypothesis seriously. Here is the way we're going to investigate. And after this amount of time, we will come to some preliminary conclusion about that risk. But it's always provisional. And honestly, I don't really think there's any other way to set policy responsibly right now other than provisional benchmarks on how we understand even what these things are being built and try and index that to real-world impacts, hypothetical or otherwise. So what's the UK going to do? Unfortunately, also, like, they have $100 yeah. million. Dollars, it's like not that much. <laughs> I think the UK, well, your question was about the UK specifically. I think what the UK is doing is positioning itself as, as a kind of soft power move, as we are going to be helping to set the conversation around AI safety and just kind of planting that flag. I actually, I'm more skeptical and borderline cynical of that because. Oh, I agree. Wait, did you see the plot that they showed? I did they not showed see some that. like awful exponential plot. Oh my God. It's so funny. It's like essentially. We'll add it to the notes, but I should have it first. Um, how do I? I'll send it to you right now in this text window. How do we chat here? I don't know how to send it to you. I'll tag you on Twitter. You can text me. I, I'm on my <laughs> you work can Twitter. Computer. Yeah. I'm, I'm on my work computer. I don't have text. Okay. I tagged you on Twitter. <laughs> um, essentially, this, I didn't even DM you on Twitter. It's just a pat. Um, essentially, it's like the training compute. Uh, they fit and they like took a bunch of. They didn't even say they have a source, but they didn't say what the like dots are. I'm okay. presuming it's language models. On the x-axis is time, and on the y-axis is flops. And then there's like a bunch of dots, which are the models. And then they did the world's worst. They fixed an exponential fit. So they like were like, we're going to do an exponential fit line on it. And they're like, literally in the process of two years, we're going from zero to infinity. <laughs> I saw this because Stella from Aluthier AI was like, um, they just like YOLO'd this fit line because the cited website is wrong. So that's kind of like endemic of the things that I feel like the UK is doing. Is they're just kind of like out there, like swinging around, which maybe is less malicious than the EU because the EU is out there getting things wrong and early. <laughs> but like the EU is trying to do the right thing, they're just doing badly. So having seen the graph, I've now looked at it. Now that Nate has added me, um, 
it kind of makes me angry. Yeah, it kind of makes me angry in a way that the EU stuff does not, and that the bill of the the executive order does not either. And the reason is that, and it's not over yet. There's a whole other day. Who knows what kind of stuff is going to come out of this tomorrow? The vibe that I'm getting from the AI Safety Summit is that it's toxic. It's toxic to have a government that is more interested in being a part of a conversation than substantively contributing to it at the same time that there is a certain network of researchers and leaders in the AI field who are more interested in getting a platform from which to speak with authority than they are in accepting the indeterminate nature of the societal interface with which their models will interact. And so when you have researchers who need a platform and a platform that needs some kind of research relevance, I'm afraid that sets up conditions for toxicity, even if it's not intentionally so. And even if each member on both sides is acting in good faith, which I actually think is probably happening in this case. I think that probably both people, both sides of this, the state side and the research side, may well be acting in good faith, but the dynamic is toxic because that graph is a joke. And the, the it's fact literally that a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, and I hope that that's not the tenor of the entire proceeding, but I would encourage our listeners to reflect on whether a graph like that would be taken seriously in pretty much any other circumstance. And if not, why is it that no one in that room burst out laughing when it appeared? Oh, if that people did, it's so bad. In the room? Uh, we need to, if you're a listener and you're in the room, <laughs> I need to know. <laughs> we were looking for moles. Yeah, get in touch. Yeah, it's, I feel um, like I know people at the summit. It's not too ridiculous. Yeah, I think we both do. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Um, that's not really the point, though. I think that, if I it think is there, to me. <laughs> there, well, sure. I mean, you know who you are. Uh, there, there is, a, there is a theme emerging here, though, where you know I've been talking about, and Nate, I've seen that you've also used this phrase in your writing of the academic industrial complex, and we've talked about that in our recent episodes. There's also, of course, the moral fashion military industrial complex. There's an element of that that might be starting to rear its ugly head here. This could also just be a version of like the. <laughs> the the bureaucratic corporate complex where it's something like a state and a mix of companies that have mutual benefit from showing graphs like that and then speaking to the stakes of it and being being given license really to tell whatever story they want but Nate you also mentioned this i mean we were discussing this before we were recording contrast the tone of this to the joint statement on ai safety and <laughs> Uh, openness that Mozilla pointed out. There's no, we need we need existential risks that are not insane and that are not cartoonish. We need, there needs to be, because people are afraid right now. They're scared, they're anxious. And in some ways I do think they have reason to be, but honestly, it's kind of not for the reasons that forums like this are encouraging them to be. I'm more concerned about, again, these kind of institutional complexes that seem to be gelling up now week by week. It used to not be so, so frequent. I'm more worried about the interfaces that we blindly give to models that are dysfunctional and poisonous by virtue of the feedback loops that they can engender, either from directly interacting with users or just between the people who don't understand each other's worlds but benefit from being in proximity to each other. That's the kind of stuff that worries me more. But I'm not really seeing that kind of language or that kind of stakes being assigned to these proceedings. So far, most of the critiques that I've seen are a lot of scholars who still kind of feel that AI safety just isn't like a serious like research. Oh, field. there's another um, Jan Yashua bat on Twitter, I think. <laughs> what happened there? Uh, Jan was like, we need openness. But Yashua was like, I quit Google because I was worried about 
Jan was like, we need openness and all the famous people are acting in bad faith. And then Yashua was like, but I quit Google because I was worried. So I could say that I was worried. And I think Jan was like, that doesn't apply. You know? I saw that. That was that was Jeff Hinton, right? That wasn't Benji. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did see that. I had a 50-50 guess. I mean, 50-50 guess. <laughs> it's, um, it's a weird moment where the thing is, well, look, I've, when they're I friend, when I they're friends, they're just like the context of this Twitter thing. Like they're still friends. Yeah, so that that's weird too. And honestly, like a lot of people who publicly fight, if fight is even the right word on Twitter, are friends in real life. And I think it's becoming a problem to the extent that I'm I'm becoming increasingly annoyed at how there is a certain and it's partly generational. It's not entirely, but it but it is partly that. People who really honestly think of what they are doing and researching and saying as science, but then speak in public in an expressly political sense, where they're either speculating about things that are not even in the, per- the domain of scientists to speculate about, or they are assigning meaning to situations that are inherently like subjective and not something that you can arbitrate with the tools of an experiment or a simulation or variables or whatever other kind of stuff they they think of themselves as doing for their nine to five. And the thing is you cannot have it both ways. You cannot both be a scientist who speaks impartially about AI capabilities and a prophet of a new world order. I mean, do you think I, I feel like I'm kind of struggling with this at some point, but just like people in my new job are like, oh, we all know you already. I'm like, oh God, this sounds bad. One of my coworkers was like, oh yeah, some of my friends were asking if I was seeing you around the office. And I was just like, this is like, <laughs> this is like detrimental to having any real technical discussion at this point. It's like, yeah, I think that's, but a ch- I think some people like, I think like Jan feels the same way. He just feels compelled to say stuff because the uh, other people that seem to be saying stupider things are getting more, getting more like air airwaves. So he's like, well, I'm kind of obligated because no one else is going to say this. You have a position, yeah. right? And your position gives you strong incentive. I imagine it feels kind of like. It's magnetic, I suppose. Like you're, it's polarized in a way that either draws things out of you or, or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think that's inevitable, and I think it's really critical. <laughs> Should I put the pause logo in my Twitter name and then still tweet open source stuff? <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to maintain a brand. We had the previous episode where we were talking about integrity, right? It's hard to maintain a brand that is not exactly you, but it has an integral relationship with the values that you most deeply hold and cherish. And I think what's going on here is that people who are very prominent in the field, who think of themselves as acting in good faith, and in fact, in a a way, are acting in good faith on certain terms, are also at the same time poisoning the well of public understanding, public deliberation, the ability for people to make up their own minds about a topic rather than borrow whatever interpretations of that topic have been handed to them by people who frame them, what they're doing as objective. Because that's simply not the case in the types of problems that are being discussed this week in particular these are public problems they are predominantly not scientific problems a case in point would be the debate that's happening right now about what open even means with respect to large language models because people disagree about what open means you've i mean nate you've gone into this in your writing and we've discussed it is llama open source no, no, it's fine. <laughs> but it, in no reasonable sense is it open source. And yet that is how it was presented. 
and you you gave it a very you know lo- you were very laudatory about it when it was first um first released i mean like, lava was like the, the time when i actually learned how to be more precise about it which is pretty laughable considering that i was at hockey face and i didn't even feel a strong need to actually be correct on that or no one told me what correct was really like i might i've probably heard it but there was no guidance to like be clear everyone on base is just kind of off in vibes land because vibes are easier than being truthful or being accurate i think the question here is what does it mean to be a leader right being a leader does not mean that you can just speak with the most epistemic authority about how likely or unlikely something is that's going to happen I'm sorry to say that because I know that there are many people in the EA community or the rationalist community who think that they act as if that is what it means to be a leader. Wait, and it, the EA community determine their hierarchy based on who has the most manifold mana? <laughs> <laughs> it's a literal economic hierarchy based on betting markets? There are definitely factions of it that, yes, do act that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, I am confident that that is not how the world actually works or can be made to work. Often what it means to be a leader is to be able to have a clear understanding that you can speak to of what the boundary is between things that you're confident in claiming and things that you are not confident in predicting, but still willing to point to as needing more attention and needing more needing more guidance needing more precision and and there's this is like a scientific intellectual leader i think like a leader in general is much simpler which is just somebody that's willing to take action in ways that other people want to see examples in before they will take action take action but take action under conditions of indeterminacy Right. Of like, well, it's not really clear exactly what the consequences will be of this action. Right. Even before I take it. But I know that if I don't take it, you can just sense that that would be a failure of leadership to the extent that someone in your position who does not act decisively uh, is basically giving up, you know, any any sense of responsibility. Yeah. And this is relevant the executive order it's like the executive order's decision to kind of hold the is to like refine and hold the status quo in a way and, and that is like maintaining the status quo in a way is passively benefits open source for now it's like they didn't make it worse and that is a decision they did nothing that is an action with with some amount of leadership in it i don't like that's true we'll have to see yeah it's it's possible that certain parts of this document that maybe neither of us is sensitive to right now are going to have effects that matter where there's something about the terrain, the political terrain on which this work can get done is subtly maybe going to shift. Not in a way that guarantees any one party or actor or company will win, but that the rules are just somewhat different of how you like maintain or earn credibility and can get change to happen. I think that NIST is a major winner here. NIST was already sort of an informal center of gravity for AI policy at the federal level. This document, I think, substantially strengthens its position because, I mean, there's a few reasons for that, but just off the top of my head, we now know that I guess there's going to be some kind of AI safety institute that will be co coordinated between the UK and the US and that the US side of that at least will be done through or by or very closely in relation to NIST, which is not entirely surprising, but still seems significant uh, because the significant ramp up in bureaucratic authority that it has been effectively like given by this executive order. It was implicit previously and now it's been made explicit. So when that transition happens, that's when the alchemy kicks in. It is alchemy to take something that was not previously made explicit and to manifest it as explicit. Now this is the place where this, this shit gets done. Um, we also know that every six months, I guess, there's going to be another AI safety summit, which is kind of hilarious. It's going to give us more content <laughs> to podcast about. 
Um, I'm not sure if the next one is in France or South Korea, but there have been a few places that have been mentioned as, as subsequent to this. It's like NIST is such a kind of low profile actor in the government. Quick NIST facts for you. The National Institute of Standards and Technology was founded in 1901 as a place to measure standard weights it measures. So they had the standard like pound <laughs> the ruler. <laughs> I think they were a national laboratory. And now the annual budget is approximately a billion dollars so they could trade chat GPT. So <laughs> before you make any deliberations, NIST is, is a thing. Weights and measures matter. Uh, Nate, I don't know if you probably didn't see the most recent Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you ever watch sketches from it. I do sometimes, but I have not. Oh, the, the breakaway sketch that went kind of viral from this last week was about George Washington during the Revolutionary War and you know, his soldiers are kind of feeling it's Nate Bergazzi who's playing George Washington. He's a great, he's a great comic. I like him a lot, but the, his soldiers are kind of dispirited and not, they're not sure if they can win. And he's reminding them he has a vision for the country, like a vision for liberty and democracy and for new weights and measures. <laughs> and, and then the whole skit is him saying a foot will be 12 inches, not more, not less. And a yard is three feet and a mile is 5,280 feet. And every citizen will know this, and they will not know why. <laughs> Just stuff like that. And it's it's quite funny. Yeah, it matters. This is something... I think that what people in AI do not understand is what is the foundation of politics. It's not about being louder than other people. It's not about winning an argument. It's about who gets to define the standards, who gets to define the terms through which anything can get said. That's why the most important part of this executive order was the definitions up front. And it's also why NIST is a major broker now, even though technically all that they do is set standards for, you know, how you would evaluate language models or how you would evaluate them in a domain-specific way. It's There's nothing inherently ideological about that. But whatever standards they pick will condition any subsequent policy around what is safe or not safe, what is risky, what is not risky, what is fair, what is not fair, all that stuff is downstream of just how much is a pound? How long is a yard? <laughs> like, what is it that we're even, what is even the terrain on which we can set policy? This is what this document is trying to make more clear. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have this is transitioning from weights and measures to weights and biases, and I'm going to take my leadership role and I'm going to create a fear-mongering narrative that counters the AI safety thing so that we get a bunch of news articles about Moselle's open letter and a little AI summit about <laughs> open source AI summit between these. We're going to do that. Uh, it seems like we've got the whole plan figured out. This is a very dynamic situation. We're going to have to see where it goes. But yeah, I mean, overall, yeah, I think the conversation will change after this because now policy has weighed in. States have weighed in on stuff that really was previously just academic Twitter combined with like this whatever slapdash corporate deal. Yeah, yeah. And now it's now the terms of debate have not necessarily been settled, but they've been they've been redefined and translated to an explicitly political terrain. So now it is going to be about what are agencies working on on a month-by-month -month basis? How are they coordinating with companies? Are they not? Who are they coordinating with at those companies? Where are certain standards being set? How quickly? Are those good or bad? Can we even be in a position to evaluate those things? If we can't, does it need to be more open? If so, what does open mean? Yeah, I mean, I was at something where this is starting to happen, like an event at Berkeley about AI risk and security. And the kind of two most interesting things was the most lively debate was whether or not Berkeley should allow taking money for classified research, which Berkeley as an institution does not. Well, hundreds of billions of dollars go to places like Georgia Tech or whoever that allows classified research, especially as AI becomes more of a national security thing. And the second interesting thing is that there are multiple people from the FBI in the room with a bunch of people like professors and me and policy people at big companies where it's like the person that decides how AI is used in the FBI. 
So these conversations are happening. I don't think that that one was particular. Like, I don't, it was fine. It wasn't like that interesting, but it's good to like have the representative people in the room. Yeah. It's interesting also how this repeats. I was watching a documentary about the Columbia student uprising that happened in 1968 and a major catalyst there. There were several and there was a whole aspect of it that was about race that's beyond what I'm about to say. But one specific aspect of it was that a critical mass of the student body was upset at how there were uh, classified contracts or just military contracts that university researchers and labs had with the Department of Defense, like with the Pentagon. And this was at the height of the Vietnam War. You know, students at Columbia thought they'd be drafted. And many of them were kind of outraged at the prospect that this university, that nominally was about free inquiry, free expression, freedom of speech, free research, was partnering with the military in a secretive way to advance, you know, technologies for harm that may very well wound or kill their own students that was the sort of you know imaginary in the back of people's heads that were that were upsetting them and it's interesting to me now that we see this debate kind of happening again now with ai where universities like berkeley and like other you know proper ivy league schools uh have to ask themselves again are we willing to partner with certain institutes in a more or less secretive way to varying degrees to build consequential technology where consequential has to possibly mean harmful that's never an easy question and it's a perennial question and it's another dimension along which this politics is going to going to evolve i think that's a little bit separate from the weights and measures stuff <laughs> but those things are going to interact with each other yeah the really good place to, to stop I think so. I mean, again, this is very much a moving situation. We'll see where we are next week. After this stuff is terminated, we're going to be living in the wake of both of these events for some time. Um, it's exciting. But yeah, I don't think I have anything like, else to yeah, say. Yeah, one of my biggest takeaways was like, from a historical perspective, it was really interesting to watch all of this play out. It's like, as a history nerd, it's like obviously something that would be categorized in great detail and discussed as like history of government and states yeah and we're we're witness to it (laughs) i guess we're the historians right now i guess we're documenting in real time (laughs) that we are (laughs) okay well this has been fun as usual thanks thanks for watching rate us on whatever internet device you have as everyone says that's, that's how we do but thanks for listening uh, I'll see you later Tom. see you Nate bye for now <laughs>